friend. Welcome to another episode of Dr. Me First. It's me, your colleague in medicine and coach in life, Dr. freaking Aaron Wiseman. And we are slowly creeping towards da, 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 episode 400. And I would love for you to be an active part of it. There's a link in the show notes that if Dr. Me First has somehow helped you in some way, got you through your rough times, maybe did something bigger, I don't know. Click on the link and send me an audio of what Dr. Me First has done for you. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. I am talking with the amazing Dr. Elisa Jong. She's an oculoplastic surgeon as well as a life coach, and she is all about money. I'm so excited because her podcast, the Grow Your Wealth Mindset Podcast, is out there, and she is talking about money in a different way. So... Listen to our conversation, hear about money as a tool, about not ignoring it, and also about figuring out what is enough. All right, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Elisa Jong. It's so great to have you here with me today. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we hopped on the recording, I was telling her that her name came up recently at the badass retreat that I had here in Indiana, but I don't think her ears were burning. But I was really excited to get on this recording today with you and just learn more about you and have a chitty chat with you. So tell all the people out in podcasting world a little bit about yourself and the magic you're putting out into the world. Yeah, so I'm a fellowship-trained aquaplastic surgeon, which means I operate everything around the eye, the eyelids and what's called the orbit. I am also a life coach certified at the Life Coach School, and I coach a lot of physicians on basically like how to build their financial life so that they can start living the life of their dreams, like their ideal life. And you know, your ideal life is changing all the time. It's step-by-step step to figure out what you want. And you may actually get there and realize that's not what you want. So, but any ideal life takes some money to fund it. Money is really just a tool. And, you know, we do need money to pay for, you know, housing, food, and whatever activities you want to do. So making it so that that's all possible. Absolutely. And you got a few extra initials behind your name besides MD. Is that kind of where you started to get interested in personal finance and investing when you were doing graduate school? Yeah. So I did a PhD in neuroscience. I did the medical science training program, which did leave me loan free from my medical school. I had undergrad loans. But during my grad school years, that's actually when I first started to realize in retrospect, I had a, a former burnout. It wasn't so much exhaustion as, as much as it was loss of autonomy. I had a principal investigator, the essentially my boss, who was very micromanaging and really just even things like he didn't want me to listen to music while I was working. And and he said, well, it was distracting. So then I wore headphones. Well, it, it's still distracting you. I'm like, no, it's calming me down. It's, I don't want to listen to nothing. <laughs> so that was when I realized like, I don't want to live a life where I always have a boss where, who's telling me what to do. And so I think that rose an entrepreneur spark in me as well. But also just this idea, like I need to figure out how to have money to live on without necessarily you know, having to work for someone else for money and not necessarily even having to work for yourself, right? So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad around this time, which I think was really influential, just learning about going from being a employee or working for yourself as, you know, self-employed and moving to the other side of the quadrant and being an investor, an actual business owner. So it makes me wonder, 
Your interest in money, was it because like you had like money drama or was it, do you feel like as a younger person, like your family did a lot of great things with money and you just had always had an interest in it? I know my answer, which is I have a lot of money drama, but I'd love to hear yours. You know, I even as a child, always just love money and having money. So I would go work for money and just hoard it, actually. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I mostly bought books. If I bought anything, I might buy like a treat at school, like, you know, like ice cream sandwich. But really, I just loved saving it. And I think it was also during grad school that I realized, oh, saving's not enough. You have to invest it. And uh, so doing the MD-PhD program, I did that in Cleveland, Ohio, which has a relatively low cost of living. So a lot of MD-PhDs actually purchased a home during that time because the average time is eight years, which is long enough to purchase a home. And since we got a stipend of $20,000 back then, it was before the 2008 crash, you could actually get a loan very easily made $20,000 a year. It's kind of crazy. Uh, so I did buy a house. And so that was my kind of introduction to like personal finance was learning about a mortgage and, you know, what the different products were. So I ended up getting a 7-1 arm at the time because, you know, I was looking at selling in eight years when I finished schooling. And then just from there, kind of reading more personal finance books as well, which I think is what eventually also led me to the Rich Dad Poor Dad, though. I do remember it was actually my brother-in-law who introduced me to the Rich Dad Poor Dad book. Love it. And then I know you mentioned when um, we had kind of talked through email that you kind of hit another stretch of burnout. What was that like for you as a physician? Yeah, so I had decided I wanted to move home back to Cleveland partially to get back into real estate investing. So during grad school and after reading Rich Dad Poor Dad, I actually dove into real estate investing back then. But I did stop during my residency and fellowship years to really just focus on the training and just becoming a, you know, a great doctor. So when my jo first job out of training, which was in Virginia, didn't quite work out, I decided I want to go back home for a few reasons to be closer to lots of friends that I already established, but also the real estate. I knew what Cleveland was like, and I also had contacts in that space. So in order to go back to Cleveland, I took a job at a big hospital system, which I had previously avoided. I was in a private practice as my first job. And I was the only acroplastic specialist. So I was on a 24-7 call, which I did agree to when talking to the person who hired me, who was uh, the head of the ophthalmology division. But when I talked to her, it was like, okay, well, what do we do when I'm on vacation or if I go out of town for a weekend? And it sounded like she was very reasonable. And she was like, well, we don't have a full-time acroplastic specialist now. We don't have anyone taking calls. So you know, having someone for even the time that you're here would be well worth it. And, and you won't have to take any general ophthalmology call. And, and so that part I had written in my contract, but I didn't have specifically written that when I'm on vacation, I'm not responsible for call. And so what happened was when I am on vacation, like I was still answering resident phone calls, trying to figure out when to get patients on the schedule and taking care of patients even when on vacation. And that's not something anyone wants to do for a really no, long time. No, <laughs> no, you gotta like turn it off. Shit. I remember the first time resident called me while I was on vacation and I was like, well, I'm on vacation. And they're like, well, what should I do then? And I was like, oh, I guess I have to kind of create a plan when I get back. And so I took care of it that time. And then when I talked to my division and it was like the plan was like, yeah, you need to take care of it or you need to find someone else and take care of it. Hmm. That sounds awful. That threw it back in your lap on that sort of thing. And so because of your experience and you're like, yeah, this is not sustainable for me. Is is that when you really started to like focus in on the finances so that you could make that breakaway? 
I actually focused on the finances back in grad school. I kind of made a plan on how to be financially independent as a physician within 15 years of practicing. And I'm well on that plan. But this happened about four years after I started practicing. So I still kind of had this 10-year horizon. And I was like, 10 years is too long. There's no way I want to do this in this 10-year period. So I really was like, okay, I need to get back into this real estate investing like fast. And so I took actually quite a few real estate investment courses in the past, but it had been several years because I had taken a pause during my training. So I went ahead and took another real estate course, which actually talked a lot about mindset. And that's, and I had actually heard about coaching through the Leverage and Growth Summit and started listening to Life Coach School podcast. And so with that, I just decided to go ahead and get coaching through the Life Coach School. I joined Self-Coaching Scholars. And at this point, it's the pandemic. So I actually had a lot more time on my hands. And so when September came around and the Life Coach School, of course, was advertising their uh, coach certification, I was I took it not necessarily thinking, oh, I'm going to become a coach and build a coaching business. It was really more like, oh, I can learn the tools of self-coaching even that much better and just be that more helpful to myself because I could really see how it was helping getting the coaching. Yeah, absolutely. And so fast forwarding to today, I mean, you obviously are working with other female physicians as well, coaching and helping around money. How do you marry those two? Like all of your, because you have such a depth of financial knowledge and now with the coaching skills on board, talk about how you work with people like me in that realm. Yeah, so, you know, I do a lot of financial literacy. I go and talk to you know, people and do webinars. I've like gone to residency groups to talk about financial literacy. Uh, Last weekend, as we're doing this recording, I was actually in the American Academy of Ophthalmology. And I I spoke twice at the Academy, one on financial uh, literacy uh, to the residents in what we call the Young Ophthalmologist Program, and then another one on wellness and self-care. So I actually do think they're really quite intermingled because, you know, we think about retirement, we think about something like later on in our 60s. But what I really want people, especially physicians, to think about is trying to gain some financial independence now so that you don't feel tied to your paycheck. You don't feel like you have to work. You get to go to work because you want to, and you get to make work like you want to make it. When you're at a place where you can walk away from any job, then you are a much stronger place to negotiate for exactly what you want, and they can't give it to you going somewhere else. And even just having enough so that you know if you've got to you know, spend a few months looking for that more ideal place that you have the money to live on and your lifestyle doesn't have to significantly change during that time until you find your next landing spot. And one of the most powerful things that I've heard you say is don't ignore looking at your finances. Can you talk a little bit more to that? Yeah. So I noticed that a lot of physicians, they think, oh, I'm going to, well, even starts in medical school, right? Because I, as I was learning this, I was talking to my co-medical students in residency. I talked to, you know, my co-residents and a lot of people are like, well, I'm just going to make enough money as a physician that, you know, the money's going to handle itself. And I actually think a lot of the more senior doctors kind of even like say this to younger doctors, but, you know, medicine is changing. It's not necessarily as lucrative as it once was. You know, in ophthalmology, a lot of older physicians are selling their practices to private equity. And in many ways, the younger physicians are getting essentially screwed. So I was going to say hosed, but yes. <laughs> and so if we actually sit and look at our personal finances. We are blessed to have a large enough salary that we can, if we manage things correctly, get to financial independence within, like I said, even as a grad student, I hadn't planned out a map for 15 years. And that was just by investing in traditional like stocks and bonds and and saving and investing. And 
now there's actually a whole new world of different kinds of investments we can do as accredited investors. We can invest in like real estate syndications. So we can invest in real estate and still be hands off. We can still do the active investing in real estate if we love to. You know, there are a lot of other like private equity we can get involved in, venture capital. There's a real whole world of investing that's open to physicians that is not actually necessarily open to quote the general public. So like the teachings of Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey doesn't necessarily apply to physicians because we are really in a different place where we go through this long training process. So we don't get to save and invest necessarily when we're young, you know, when we're right out of college or in our twenties, but we do get this huge boost of income right after we finish with training. And what we do in that first five years after training, I think really can set a huge financial trajectory for the rest of our lives. But I do want to say, even if you're not in those first five years, you know, there's no better time to start to now to change the trajectory that you've been on. I think it's really great to say because, you know, there's more and more physicians that are coming to me who are a year, two years, three years out of training. And they're like, Aaron, I'm burned out. I hate this. And they're scared because, you know, they're like, but what do I do? Like, I don't want to take a lower income because I'm now finally just like making money. And I love that you say that is like you, you can still be okay if you like, for instance, what I did is, you know, I made a shift and we went down in income, but you know, it, it's more important about showing up at work and having second year medical student love rather than slogging through just because they're like, well, I got paid good. So there's that. Yeah. And I think actually a lot of residents and fellows are also burnt out, but they just have this idea, well, when I'm attending, it's going to be fine. And then they get to being an attending. And like you said, in the two or three years, they're like, oh. Oh, shit. It's, <laughs> <yeah>. it's worse. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, I think that's why I see so many people because like myself, I was already burned out in residency, but it was like that, that like delayed gratification, like it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And then when you get out and it's not better, or maybe you get 10 years into practice and you're like, shit, it's not better. It's like taking that time to recognize, but it can get better if you make those changes. And like you said, money is a great tool that you can use. And it's not just a hammer where you can like swing and destroy things. I mean, it can be delicate and and you can make these amazing shifts and changes and put money in places that makes you feel good. And also, I think, which is most important for female physicians, it feels nurturing and secure. Yes. And as a uh- for women, like society really teaches women that we're not good with numbers. We're not good with money. Let the man handle the money, right? Because there were centuries where essentially men did handle the money and women couldn't even own property. I mean, for centuries in human civilization. So that socialization is hard to overcome without working on the mindset. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that I love. So my husband and I are doing a lot of farm ground investment. One, because he's a farmer and he can farm it. And two, it's just a great investment because land always goes up in the Midwest. It's a finite resource, right? And I always get so excited when we get to go to the bank or we're signing off on stuff and my name is on a piece of ground. I think about all the women in my past and generationally who were viewed as a piece of property themselves. And like you said, couldn't own ground. And I'm like, hells yes, standing on their back and being like, we did it. And I think that's what empowers me too. Yeah, it is empowering, but I do think there's more work to do. And so we got to yes. do more, more of that and break through all the glass ceilings. So I would love to, you were talking about like the venture investing and some of that other stuff. Here's where I'm coming from. I understand retirements. I understand like single home dwelling, like Airbnbs, owning that kind of stuff. Can you talk to those other things that you were talking about just to give me a little better knowledge? 
Oh, yeah. So syndications are basically an investment where a bunch of investors come together to tackle a real estate investment. So when you look at those huge office buildings, like 200, 300, 400 unit apartment complexes, those you know, commercial places like big malls, like hotels, those are typically going to be owned by a syndication where a bunch of investors came together to make that happen. So a good example is apartment complex. You take a 300 you know, apartment complex, there's going to be a what's called a sponsor or general partner or syndicator who kind of uh, sees this apartment complex and sees like, oh, you know, there's it's being sold. This is a good deal. We can rehab units, raise the rents, and make a really good investment. But these people are really professional real estate investors. They're doing this again and again. So they don't have the millions or hundreds of billion dollars to put down and do all this. And yes, you can get a loan from the bank, but the bank typically loans you know, 80%. You still got to come up with a 20% down payment. So now they have all the know-how of how to do this and bet the deal. They need cash to actually you know, make it all happen. And usually they do put some of their own money in, but you know, like I said, these can really take quite a bit of money to get off the ground. So now they go out to the world of what's called accredited investors because the SEC has made you know specific rules. Like you can't just go to anyone to, to get money. You have to go to someone who's able to do these kind of investments. And then as an accredited investor, you have to make at least $200,000 a year for the last two years. And chances are you'll continue to make $200,000 a year or a couple who makes $300,000 a year for the last two years and combined will continue to do that. So a lot of physicians do fall in this category. And and so as an accredited investor, you can invest in the syndication. And there usually are minimums. They could be, you know, typical minimums are like 25000 or 50000 though there is a crowdfunding for you can actually invest as low as 5000 And so you, so all this money gets pulled in and basically you become a limited partner in this LLC. The general partners is that real estate investor or a group of investors who are actually going to do all the hard work. They're going to secure the financing with the bank. They are actually purchasing the property. They are hiring contractors to go do all the fix up. They are hiring property managers to actually find renters for, for the units. And then you as the limited partner, you vet the deal. You make sure this is something you want to invest in that looks good, that the people you're investing with like have the background and experience and knowledge to actually pull off what they say they're going to pull off. And then if once you do all that vetting, you're like, yep, want to do it, then basically you wire the money with them and sit back. And some deals will give distribution so that you'll get, you know, a check in the mail every month or every quarter. And some, it's really like all the money is going in. If you like do a development deal where they're building something, so there's not really cash flow, then the money will go towards that. And then when there will be some kind of endpoint where, where you'll get cash down, you'll get, you know, Significant. So if you invest 50,000, you may get, you know, 60, 70,000, 80,000, even 100,000 back, depending on how well they do. And that's what I was going to say. I wondered about the payout. So you're saying like already built buildings, like apartment complex or strip mall, they may distribute the money through the year. But if you're doing like a building project, do they sell it off to the next person? And then that's when you get cashed out? That's typically, um, they either sell out or what they can do is refinance. So if you imagine a building project, then, you know, they, they build whatever it is. And then now it's worth something. And now they could potentially, especially with appreciation, can refinance. And basically the equity that from appreciation is now the down payment. And then you can get back that original money. And then in those cases, you'll actually still have ownership. And at that point, it should be cash flowing. So now you can get distribution checks as well. 
And what is the the potential risk with that? Like a project falling through or or something? Talk, talk to me a little bit about that because I know with investment, there's always some amount of risk. Right. So the biggest risk is the, the person you're investing with and that if they can actually do what they say they're going to do, because you could have a great deal and you could have a mediocre person just ruin the deal, right? They they hire contractors that don't ever show up and they don't chase after the contractors. They say like, oh, the rehab's going to only cost X, but it ends up costing 3X. They aren't, if they're doing a build project, there's a little bit more risk because now you have to get all the permits for the build. There's a lot more to building a, something that wasn't there as opposed to taking something there and just, you know, cosmetically uh, sprucing it up. So the number one risk is going to be who you're working with and whether or not they can actually deliver what they're promising. And so you really want to look at like, well, how many times have you done this in the past? Like what deals have not been profitable? Why were those deals not profitable? Back in 2008, when real estate just fell through, there were lots of people who, you know, found themselves in bad situations, right? Lost a lot of money, but there were still investors who made money through all that. And do you get a choice? Like if you want to like say they build the building, they refinance to pay you out, or can you stay in that deal? As a limited investor, you don't really have a choice. They, uh, the general partners will do what they decide to do, mm-hmm. which, you know, often it is to make sure their investors make money, but not necessarily like your goal may be, oh, I want cash flow. I would love for them to refinance and just keep giving distributions. But other investors that you've invested with, they might be like, no, I want my money back so I can go invest in something else. I really just want to grow. So in the end, the general partners are going to do whatever is kind of best for them as well as best for all the investors to make sure that they want to keep their investors happy so that they keep coming back to them and invest in the next deal and the next deal. So it's really about finding that like partnership with the the real estate person the commercial real estate. Right. Because there are some syndicators who really, they look at, like I know this one group in California, they really look at buying and holding. They want to buy great property and just hold it forever uh and refinance as needed. Whereas other uh, places are really like looking like, okay, we're going to take this apartment complex that's, you know, a little shabby, cosmetically rehab it, get it to full rents. And then we're going to sell it for their appreciation so we can go and do this again and again. So flipping it. Is there any restrictions across state lines? Um, not really across state lines. I mean, there's a different tax taxes for states. So there are some states that don't have state income tax. And there are some states that do. And the state does have state income tax. And you're investing in a syndication within that state. Then you may need to file state income taxes there. So you got to kind of watch that cool. Well, thank you for letting me pick your brain on that because that's actually one area that I'm like, I had for a long time thought about um, getting homes, Airbnb, like renting. And then I'm like, no, that's like a lot more effort than I want to (laughs) do. It it, it can be a lot more effort. I mean, you can try to find either a co-host or property manager, but that really eats into the money for sure. Absolutely. So yeah, that's why I'm now like, hmm, I'm going to be a little more like hands off and just let things roll. So I appreciate. Are there other types of investments where it's more passive? Yeah. So I talked about individual syndications. There are also real estate funds where they actually invest in multiple syndications. So now the funds usually have a minimum of $100,000, which is more than the minimums of syndications, but then you're investing in multiple syndications. So if one doesn't do so well, now you've got others who are likely to do well. So overall, it's more diversified and just like you buy an index fund instead of buying yeah, so individual Yeah, like stocks. a mutual fund. Right. Okay. That sounds good too. 
Any other things that like you want to share financially that maybe listeners need to know about? I think the number one thing is really to just invest in your own education. And it doesn't have to be a lot of time or money, right? You could just spend 20, 30 minutes a week, like reading another chapter of a book or listening to a podcast. And there's so much to learn, but just figure out like what sounds interesting to you. Does it sound interesting to actually buy a short-term rental like Airbnb? Do you love hospitality? Do you love interior design? Do you love the idea of like getting furniture and like, you know, getting little treats for your guests and, and communicating with a bunch of people? Or does that sound awful? And you just want to send someone a check and have money come in every month. And also kind of what returns are you looking for and what your end goal is. So the more hands-on you are, the more control you have, which some people really like. But of course, with more control usually means a little bit more work, right? When you're investing with something like a fund or syndication, you don't have really any control. But other than vetting what you're investing in, then all the work is done. Love it. And speaking of podcasts, people need to come over and start listening to yours so they can hear more about this, the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset podcast. Talk a little bit more about that and the other things you're doing. Yeah, so I started the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset podcast in June of this year. I started actually on my sister's birthday, June 1st, was when the first episode released. And my goal is just financial education as well as working on financial mindset. So there's kind of a mix of episodes. And I started off with just the basic, like learning uh, about emergency funds and index fund investing, but also about like, what's your why? And, you know, this money buy happiness, I have an episode on that. And so mindset plus money. And in the future, I do want to start doing episodes on things like real estate investing. That's actually the next plan episode I am working on now. And then all the different types of other investings, private equity, venture capital, all these things will be in future episodes. Well, I love it, Elisa. I'm so glad to hear that. And I'll pop over there and start listening to it. I know my answer if money buys happiness makes things a shit ton easier, but I don't know that it really buys it. Well, thank you so much, friend, for coming on the podcast, for sharing your knowledge. I'm so excited to see how you grow your podcast too. You just have such a wealth of knowledge that I feel like I could sit here and just pick your brain all day, but I won't. But I will come over and get you in my ears in the podcast. And and also she's on Instagram, Facebook, all all the places at Wealthy Mindset MD. So make sure you go follow her and we'll have all of that in the show notes too. It is just great to have you, friend. So just let you know, for Instagram is Grow Your Wealthy Mindset is the handle. Um, the Wealthy Mindset MD is my YouTube channel. I actually transitioned from Wealthy Mindset MD to Grow Your Wealthy Mindset probably about a year ago. Love it. I love the growth. You know, we all are uh, always evolving. So good. Well, thanks again, friend. We'll have to have you come back on and talk more about this in-depth money stuff because... It's pretty badass. It really is. Even if we can just invest like $25, it's it's awesome to see our hard work blossom and grow. Thank you. I've heard it takes a village to raise a child. But you know what else? After raising that child and once that kid has grown up, it takes a community to care for them. Communities are what keeps us sane. They help us heal our trauma. They dance with us when we're winning. Without my online communities, I would have never made it through burnout. And I certainly would have gotten through the shitstorm of this pandemic either. If you too need community, I want to invite you over to my badass Slack group. 
That's right, I'm not going to be on Facebook, but I do love me some Slack. It's a place where you'll find that you're not the only one. You're not alone. You'll get total validation on what's going on with you. There's a pool of resources. Community is active and rating to welcome you in. We are all helpers who have needs. And sometimes we need to have a community that can surround us, protect us, give us a hug, and lift us up. And that's what the badass Slack community is. So come join me today. Link is in the show notes. All right, friends, that's a wrap for today. I hope that you are getting out there, taking as much rest, advocating for yourself, and remembering that your life, your calling, your pulse matters. See ya.